Hey listener, thank you for joining us for this installment of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. We are currently studying the book of Ruth. Many people approach this well-known story as a romance between Ruth and Boaz, but it's a bit more than that. A lot more, actually. It's a story of grief and loss, bitterness and resentment. It's a story of including the stranger. It's a story of the radical and costly commitment modeled by some of the book's main characters and God's unending faithfulness even in the midst of tragedy. Ultimately, it's a story of redemption and restoration and hope. There's a lot to consider in this beautiful and ancient work of art. And as we hope to make clear, it points us ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Enjoy the episode. story right now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit, I think. Okay, one time we were at a, um, an orphanage in Tijuana, Mexico. Rachel said something about nearly killing children, so this is my, the segue into that. They were playing, there was like kids from all ages, and we were playing soccer, and the goal was underneath of this jungle gym sort of area, and there was about this maybe three-year-old, maybe two-and-a-half-year-old just sitting on the top of the jungle gym and something happened and like the ball was teed up right to me and I kind of gave it one of those and it, it got away and the spin was right and it hit a Jesus right on the head and he started teetering and I was like, no! And Jesus fell on his head from maybe like six feet. Yeah, it was serious. It got serious very fast. Luckily, the orphanage in Tijuana, Mexico had that like rubberized flooring so he just kind of bounced and like, I was freaking out. I was running around saying like, oh, I think I killed one of the kids. His name's Jesus. And the workers there were just like, it's fine, whatever. And they just went and picked him up and gave him a lollipop and he was, he was fine. The next time, however, when our friends went back to Tijuana, Mexico, Kate and I were unable to make the trip and nobody saw Jesus. Right. So if you have a prayer list, put him on there. I, it's been some five or six years now, and uh, not since they've like found, I'm, I think he's been found, but it's been five or six years since I've been there. So with that in mind, uh, we're gonna talk about Ruth. So over the last few weeks, uh, we have been studying the book of Ruth, and just very quickly, I want to give you a brief synopsis of where we have been up to this point. This story really is um, not appropriately named. Really, the main character of this story, as it's presented in the Hebrew Bible, is Naomi. Uh, from the very beginning, we see Naomi uh, with her husband and her two kids, and they're, they're leaving their home in Bethlehem because there's no food. They're in the midst of a severe famine, and they travel to the east, to Moab. This was not probably the best faith move that they could have made. People probably would have been questioning why they were going to a foreign territory and why they were not just hunkering down and, and praying for God to bring rain and, and food to um, be available to them. However, the narrator says nothing about that, and we find them in this foreign land. Within the scope of two to three verses, Naomi has watched her husband die and her two sons die. It's a, it's a 10 year period, but she's been through an enormous amount of grief in just a few verses. Now, before they passed away, her two sons, Malon and Kilion, had married two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And Naomi hears that God has broken the famine back home in Bethlehem. 
So she commits herself to going back to where she came from. And we've played around with this idea of how Naomi would be going back to these people that she left 10 or so years ago with nothing. When she returns, even she says, I went away full, but God has brought me back empty. Along the way, she begins to resist her traveling companions and tries to push Orpah and Ruth to go back home because she could do nothing to provide for them. We're gonna pick up some, on some of this this evening. Just this idea of widows, people without men in their lives in the ancient Near East was not a great time. And Naomi saying, I cannot help you, daughters-in-law. You need to go back to the house of your mother where you can get married again so that you'll be okay. Orpah leaves and she goes back to the house of her mom and kind of regroups and we can assume that she gets married again and her life kind of picks up where it left off. We can assume that, it's not in the text. But Ruth, however, says, Naomi, wherever you go, I go. I'm not going back to the house of my mom. I'm not going back there. I'm going where you go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die and you're buried, I will die and be buried there as well. She's making this huge statement. And Naomi, in, in chapter one, isn't really having it. it, just says that she gives up talking to her. In chapter two, because they are still without food, Ruth sets out to um, find food. And because the Old Testament has these laws for gleaners, widows and orphans, people that have been oppressed and people that don't have um, money or resources within the law, people that own land and have a crop, they need to leave some of that land so that people can come and get some of the produce there so that they can live. Now, this isn't a long-term solution. This is only like a, a two-month window or so where people can have food provided for them. And this is what Ruth sets out to do, and she just happens, as the text says, she just happens to fall into the land of Boaz, who is not only a wealthy landowner, but he is one of Naomi's kinsmen, part of the family. And for an ancient Near Easterner reading this story, they would have heard that there's hope here in Boaz and how he could maybe provide for Ruth and Naomi. Ruth finds favor with Boaz and, and she gets to glean in a prime spot in the field and Boaz provides for her and even sends her home with some, with some food for Naomi. And it's at this moment when Naomi moves from grieving to a little twinkle of hope in her eye you don't hear that in the story, but you just see hints of it where she begins to start plotting and planning. Even the way that she talks to Ruth is changed now. She's not um, continuing to be overcome by grief. She begins to plan. And this is where we pick up in Ruth chapter three. Ruth chapter three, beginning in verse one, it says, Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I seek security for you? so that things might go well for you. Now isn't Boaz, whose young women you were with, our relative? Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. You should bathe, put on some perfume, wear nice clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he is lying. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Ruth re replied to her, I'll do everything you are telling me. 
So she went down to the threshing floor and she did everything just as her mother-in-law had ordered. Boaz ate and drank and he was in a good mood. He went over to lie down by the edge of the grain pile. Then she quietly approached, uncovered his legs and lay down. During the middle of the night, the man shuddered and turned over and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. She replied, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread out your robe over your servant because you are a redeemer. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have acted even more faithfully than you did at first. You haven't gone after rich or poor men. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you everything you are asking. Indeed, my people, all who are at the gate know that you are a woman of worth. Now, although it's certainly true that I'm a redeemer, there's a redeemer who is a closer relative than I am. Stay the night, and in the morning, if he'll redeem you, good, let him redeem. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I myself will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, then she got up before one person could recognize another, for he had said, no one should know that the woman came to the threshing floor. He said, bring the cloak that you have on and hold it out. She held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and placed it upon her. Then she went into town. She came to her mother-in-law who said, how are you, my daughter? So, so Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley for he said to me, don't go away empty handed to your mother-in-law. Sit tight, my daughter, Naomi replied, until you know how it turns out. The man won't rest until he resolves the matter today. The word of God for the people of God. I want to begin this by talking about the Christian dating game a bit. I know I have some experience with this. I grew up in, uh, in a Christian family. I went to Christian school. I went to church every week. So for me, when I was a teenager, what was emerging on the scene of the, of the Christian dating circuit was a book known as I Kissed Dating Goodbye. If anybody in the room has any concept of what I'm talking about, let me see those hands. This is a pastor who used to be serving in Gaithersburg, Maryland at Covenant Life Church. His name's Josh Harris. And he wrote this book when he was like 12, not really. I mean, he, he was young, maybe in his early 20s, but he wrote this book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and Christians started eating it up. They begin to say like, yeah, we shouldn't date. We shouldn't date without purpose. We shouldn't date unless we think that the person that we're going out with could be our wife, even as a 15-year-old. Yeah, we shouldn't do that. He, he wrote a couple books. That, the one that followed that was called Boy Meets Girl. And I remember my mom used to buy me dating books as a kid. And I think this was because she really didn't like most of the girlfriends that I had when I was growing up. So she would subtly like give me a book like, here, read this and then dump the girl that you're with because this is not working. Um, just read this. I don't, mom never really pushed the courtship motif, but this is what Josh Harris was all about. It wasn't just dating to have fun with people. It was about courting, which meant that if I wanted to pursue a girl, what I would do is I would not talk to the girl. I would talk to her parents. And I would say, Mr. So-and-so, I'm very interested in your daughter. Yes, I'm 14 years old, but I would like to court her and prepare for marriage. 
something to, something to that effect. Now, I'm, I'm just, I'm over embellishing what, what's going on here. And there's a lot of good principles that he does lay out. I don't think that um, we should just be ridiculous about dating. However, what it has done in my mind as a 35-year-old now married father of two beautiful children, what I see within the Christian community, what this kind of teaching has laid out for a lot of you, my dear college friends, as we now find ourselves in the midst of the Christian dating game, what this has spawned is people who are unable to ask folks out on dates. Why? Because it's so much pressure. I can't ask that girl to coffee because if I do, she'll want me to marry her. And I don't know if I want to marry her yet. We need to go glow bowling in groups first for 10 months before I can figure out if we need to have coffee. That's a big move, pastor. I don't. Calm down. Everybody calm down. This was, this was the, uh, where I was at as a, as a kid. I was the guy that wanted just to go get, I didn't drink coffee, but I don't even remember what we did for dates, but we just did dumb stuff. Like let, we just hung out with people and tried to figure out if they were actually worth pursuing. And if I could just offer some unsolicited advice. You know how Paul, when he's writing in Corinthians, says this is me talking, not the Lord in some bits. Let's, this is me talking, maybe not the Lord. I'm not sure. <laughs> But what I would just allow you to receive young college people and even young high school people, when you're thinking about dating, it's okay. Settle down, take a breath, learn to enjoy people for who they are and get to know them. You'll be okay. Don't put so much pressure on yourself that that first date to rise up means you gotta buy a ring the next week. That's just not usually how it works. Now, the reason why I'm talking about the Christian dating game and Josh Harris is because what Josh Harris was basically telling young women to do is, hey, young women, it's your job to sit at home and wait for that young man to go talk to your dad or to your mom or whoever so that you can finally go out on a date with them. Now, as a dad, now I've got boys, so I don't really know this, but I mean, it would be nice to hear from somebody that wanted to hang out with my sons at some point, but that, I don't know, it's a weird, anyway. Um, <laughs> what this has caused is for women not to pursue people, and it's also caused guys not to pursue people either. In this story, however, Naomi's version of this is, let's get a girl married game. Okay, this isn't just let's sit around and wait for something to happen. She's saying, Ruth, we got stuff to do, baby girl. We've got to go, okay? I have got a plan for you, and this is what you need to enact. Now, I just wanna pause here for a moment and say, I welcome this, okay? I welcome the interaction. It's okay for you guys to encourage me a bit, all right? No, we're Baptists in a Methodist church, so we don't know much about that, but it's okay. Now, Naomi's version is to get a girl married, and this is what she does. She is pushing Ruth out the door and giving her um, ways in which to do that. Now, she says, my daughter, and again, this is, this is so subtle, but remember when, when Ruth says, I'm going where you're going, and she just stops talking to her. But now Naomi is addressing Ruth with terms of endearment, my daughter, this is a big move in the relationship. And maybe it's because Ruth just came home with a sack full of uh, bread for mom-in-law, but still there's, there's this relationship that's being born here and Naomi's spirit is beginning to change. She says, my daughter, shouldn't I seek security for you? There's a lot loaded up into this Hebrew term. 
Some people would say it's not just, um, the term actually means rest, but it's implying that the rest that Ruth will find, and now this is not a 21st century uh, feminist text, okay? But the rest that Ruth is going to find here in the ancient Near East is being married to someone who can provide for her. And check out what, what Naomi says. She says, shouldn't I seek security for you so that things might go well, not for me, not for the line of my deceased son, but so that things might go well, Ruth, for you. That's the only thing that Naomi has that she can offer Ruth at this point. Now we're gonna see in chapter four how this like gets blown up, but in this moment, this is Naomi just saying from her very heart, Ruth, I want to give you safety and security and I want to provide for you what I'm able to provide for you. And for perhaps this is what is gonna happen. Perhaps we can get you married. Now, she starts giving some tips. Ruth, what you need to do here is you need to bathe, you need to put on perfume, you need to wear, I don't like this translation, a lot of them will say you need to wear nice clothes, really it's just you need to wear normal clothes, but like put on, some, put on something, Ruth. It's not like a fancy term, like a fancy clothes sort of word, it's not like she's going to the prom, but just wear something that's presentable and then go down to the threshing floor. Okay, now I understand that like we live in Salisbury, right? Most of us have no concept of threshing floor uh, situations, okay? We're going to unpack some of this, and not really many of us have. Yeah, I hope that, you know, when you're going out on dates, you bathe yourself, put on some perfume. Like, the, the real term there is, like, anointing yourself with these oils and wearing nice or presentable clothes. Now, I'm just going to give you some background here, some of which I just thought was interesting, um, bathing was probably not an everyday or even a weekly practice in ancient Israel. Now I know some of you, like you shower in the morning and you shower at night, and if you go outside at any point in the day, you shower in the middle of the day too. Like you just, that's how you go. And if you have to pay your own water bill, then that might be a thing. Or if your parents do, that might be a thing too. But like that's, this is, this is not in your, your realm of thinking. I used to be, one of my college roommates, like he would just go a few days. He's, he's like 38 now and he's married and he's got like five kids, but he would go days without taking a shower and his hair would just get more and more greasy. Side note, when we were living in our our apartment and we got rid of our couch, we had our couch um, for like three or four years. And when we left, there was just two like oil spots where heads were from the people that would sit there every day. Okay. So Bathing, it was, it was not an everyday or even a weekly practice in ancient Israel. And the use of oil in such a non-utilitarian way as bodily anointing, which Naomi is telling Ruth to do, it surely would have been even less frequently. Okay, so just, just pick, pick the context here. Hey, Ruth, you might not have done this for a few days, but go get a shower and take some of the oil that we have or that we can get from somewhere else and smell better than you do right now because you've been out in the field and you've been working really hard and like anoint yourself a bit and get ready for this guy. Now, I thought that this was like uh, a commentator over commentating on certain things because I thought that this was ridiculous, but I'm gonna read it to you anyway just so you can think things that are funny that I think are funny too. He says, the need for perfume was heightened by the hot climate and the lack of modern style deodorants to combat body odors. And I'm like, are you getting paid for this? (laughs) Yeah, we get it, man. It's okay. It's hot. She's working. They don't have degree antiperspirant back in the ancient Near East. We get it. Okay. But what 
Naomi is telling Ruth to do is she's beginning to tell her to, to plot. And now what's interesting about this, there's a text in Ezekiel chapter 16 with the same progression of take a bath, put on some perfume, wear, now in that text it actually is wear nice clothes, and it's a wedding text. This is not stuff that happens every day, but for an ancient Near Eastern audience, there was resonances and they would have heard, wait a second, Ruth ain't just going to the threshing floor. Ruth's trying to get hitched. All right, Naomi. So this is the plan. Take a bath, put on some perfume, wear some nice clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor. But now it gets super dicey. And when he lies down, this is saying, hey, when you go there, just stay off in the, in the bushes somewhere and don't let anybody see you spot out where Boaz goes to lie down. At the threshing time, there would have uh, potentially been other farmers there with their own grains to winnow as well, which and from what I understand of winnowing, you go to this threshing floor and you like toss up um, the exposed uh, kernel from the husk and the husk will get blown away and the kernels will fall to the ground. So you're like winnowing by throwing stuff up and the good stuff falls to the ground and the rest of it blows away. This is what's happening here. But farmers are surrounding this big, it's a big flat circle, potentially paved of some sort. You've got some bricks or what have you, or just really hard flat surface. Um, and she's saying, spot where he goes to lie down. Notice the place where he's lying. Then Ruth, you go, uncover his feet, and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. This is the best I could do. <laughs> you know, we've, we've used this a few times now, but this is, as I hear this, I'm like, the only way I can communicate this to people is with Kevin Hart, because this is insane what she's asking Ruth to do. When he goes to lie down, notice where he is lying, then sneak over and uncover his feet. For an ancient audience, when you hear that word uncover, what it goes with sometimes is go to uncover one's nakedness. It's a sexy term. Okay? You're gonna hear a couple of these. This is now not not all the time. But sometimes, in some contexts, it's, it's a sexy term where people are going to try to maneuver. That's the best I got for us, okay? So go and uncover, now what are you uncovering? His feet. This word only appears here and in Daniel, and I wanna just tell you something about this word here. Um, the, the term for feet, the normal one, regel, uh, it can mean feet. <laughs> it, it, it can, mean, it can mean legs, it can mean lower legs, and it can mean genitalia. Just to give you the lay of the land here, okay? So what, what Naomi is saying is go and uncover, and an ancient audience would say like, that's an odd verb choice, his feet. Now, now what some people have done here is to say that this is a weird word, and Naomi is trying to tell Ruth not to go expose his nakedness, but she's using a term here to tell Ruth not to do that. And I actually do think that this is what's happening here. I don't think that she's getting super risque, all right? But I do think that she's going and she's uncovering the man's, not just his feet, but maybe like his lower legs. And then she's going to lie down with him. Another term in the Hebrew Bible that's used very evocatively of sleeping with someone. It doesn't say, and so-and-so slept with so-and-so. It says, and so-and-so either knew such-and-such -such, or they laid down with so-and-so. These terms here, they're loaded with sexual overtones and they're trying to paint a picture of what Ruth is going to do. And Naomi says, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth says, sure. <laughs> Sounds good, mother-in-law. 
no problem. You know, now remember, this is Ruth, who uh, when Naomi has told her four times, go back home, go back home, I don't want you here, go back home, and Ruth says, stop. Wherever you go, Naomi, I am going with you. This is a person that can stand up for herself, but here she's getting this advice from mom-in-law, and she's like, yep, yep. I've seen Boaz in the field, yep. Now, I, I do not wanna, I don't wanna over-embellish the romance here because remember what Boaz says, and we'll get into this later, he says, you haven't gone after rich guys, even though Boaz, I mean, he's pretty well off, but he, it's also saying you haven't gone after young people, right? And Ruth is putting herself in a situation where she is seemingly looking towards marriage with Boaz, not for her own benefit alone, but for Naomi's benefit as well. Don't, you go, you're going down the wrong street if you're trying to over-romanticize this and you've got two star-crossed lovers and this is like Ruth's big move. It's a big move, but not because she's head over heels with Boaz, but because she's wanting to provide for her mother-in-law in a way that no one else can. Now, I do have to tell you something about women and the threshing floor because uh, this is where farmers would go and they'd have their, their um, crops there and they'd be there for a little bit of time. Boaz is sleeping next to his piles of grain, probably because he doesn't want anybody to come and steal what he's got. But um, in the ancient Near East, the threshing floor was a place where some illicit relationships could take place. Anytime you got people like winnowing barley or feasting, we talked about sheep shearing before, anytime you got any sort of these... Um, agriculturally rooted times, there's some festivals going. Remember, Boaz is eating and he's drinking and he's feeling good. I don't wanna read into that too much, but he's, he's, he's all right. And now here, we've got this kind of um, underlying danger and risk about Ruth going to the threshing floor because she might end up looking like a prostitute. Now, what's interesting about this, and this just demonstrates to me how I'm gonna say it, how careless we are when we read the Bible. But for a lot of the Jewish interpretive um, community, they, they look at every single word in the text, right? So when Ruth is following Naomi's instructions, it says, so she went down to the threshing floor and, with the implication, and then she did everything just as her mother-in-law had ordered. So what one famous Jewish interpreter named Rashi said uh, in, I believe he was in the medieval centuries, he said, she went there first because if she was like all washed up and perfumed up and all dressed up, then she'd look like a prostitute walking through town and then people might take advantage of her. So she's going there first and then following her mother-in-law's orders. Now, maybe Rashi, perhaps, but the point is, people could um, misidentify Ruth for a prostitute if she went about this in the wrong way. Also, when Boaz is sending her home, he says no one should know that the woman came to the threshing floor because of this illicit relationships. We don't want that to, to stain what we have here. So you need to go so that nobody knows that you were actually here with me. So Ruth quietly approaches she uncovers his legs, and then she lays down. Now, I have to say something about this, because when I'm up here dancing around, we're talking about sexy stuff, it's funny, but what Ruth is doing is she's putting her entire life on the line 
for Naomi. Do not forget that. This isn't just, oh, I'm gonna go try to nab a man. This is, it could be a really bad deal if something, uh, somebody sees me or something uh, doesn't go according to plan and Ruth is risking a lot for her mother-in-law. We also have something that we need to be reminded of here within this time. It's about economic survival where if they can't figure out a way to, to fend for themselves outside of um, this harvest time, they were screwed. They had to do something. It's also the, the timing of this is they've waited. Like they've, they've, um, they've waited for somebody to come and help them and nobody's come to help them. So Naomi is now saying, Ruth, we gotta do something. I'm gonna send you out because we need to take a risk here for our own economic survival and so that you can potentially be um, saddled up to a man so that we can be okay. So during the middle of the night, the man shuddered and turned over. Those are really difficult Hebrew terms there. Nobody quite knows what to do with them, but the best that people are coming up with is he gets cold. Remember, because he has his, his legs uncovered. There's nothing illicit about these two terms here, but what we do see is he's shuddering and he's beginning to turn over. He's like um, just getting restless. And then the, the, the Hebrew term there is hene, which means behold, but one commentator says the best way to translate this is, and voila, there was a woman lying at his feet, <laughs> right? So he's just sitting there minding his own business and he turns and he gets startled and he's afraid and then voila, there's a woman. <laughs> now, stuff's gonna get weird before it gets not weird. It's already a little bit strange in here, but you're doing fine, you know, just good, good on you. We're adults here and we can talk about things that are weird, but this is where things take a, a really hard right turn, all right? When we're un trying to understand how to read the Bible, there's people that read into this. And anytime it seems like commentators have an opportunity to say like, ooh, Ruth's wanting to go have sex with somebody, then somebody's gonna jump on board with that because it makes for a, a cool interpretation and it makes for a fun sermon and it makes for all kinds of things. But it's important to see like what we're reading into the text here. Now I wanna show you one uh, reading from the ancient Jewish interpretive community where they're trying to see how Boaz would have um, reacted to this moment where he's, he's startled, he turns over and then there's a woman at his feet and then what he does with that. Um, is interesting. So this is what the ancient Jewish interpreters say. The Targum, remember, this is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so after Hebrew had come and gone, people spoke Aramaic and they were translating the Aramaic. And the Aramaic translation of this wants to make sure that we understand that Boaz is completely chaste in this story. Like his chasteness is made explicit. So what it says is, it adds at this point when, when Boaz sees this woman that his flesh became like a turnip. Do with that what you will. But that he restrained himself just like Joseph and Palti, both of whom were tempted by women. I really just thought that you guys would smile a bit at that, but perhaps I've misjudged the room here. <laughs> It's not too often that a pastor gets to say that Boaz's flesh becomes like a turnip. I even thought about like hitting to a turnip slide, but you know, we're just gonna, we're gonna move past that, all right? We're gonna. But what they're wanting to make clear here is that Boaz is not in fact making a move on Ruth when he could have, because this is where people do that at the threshing floor. But Boaz is not that type of a guy. He is the model of godliness. 
What instead Boaz does is he says, who are you? (laughs) And you can read that in a bunch of different ways. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Like any, you, any way you inflect each of those words, it just means something totally different, right? But it does seem that Boaz is trying to um, just figure out what the heck is going on. I know most of you, when you wake up, you're not like in the most comatose of states, but he says, who are you? And Ruth says this, I am your servant, Ruth. Okay, we've got some Hebrew on the screen, and this is important because this word here is different than the word that Ruth uses in chapter two. This is the word ama, which some people would say is up one step on the, can you take me back to that screen? Up one step on the, um, the class system. Yeah, that term there, um, shifcha, that's like she is a servant of all servants, but now she says, I am Ruth, I'm not your shifcha, I am your ama. Boaz has been eating and drinking, and Ruth has this very like subtle change of phrase. Some people read into this and say that she is not saying that she's just a servant, but she's a servant of marriageable age and availability. See how I've just over-sexified that? I'm, that's not what's happened, but she, it might be the case that she's saying, I, as your ama, am here for a different purpose. And then she goes on to say something that's even more crazy, but we don't get it in our context. She says, I am Ruth, your ama, your servant, potentially of marriageable age and availability. Spread out your robe over your servant because you are a redeemer. We don't understand what she has just done. She has proposed to Boaz, who has just woken up. Who are you? What's what's going on? I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over me because you are my kinsman redeemer. What's happening? I know that Kate and I do not have these great interchanges. Like when I first woke up, uh, the other day, Tessa watches our kids and she shows up around 8.30 every day. And like the first words out of my mouth that morning were when Tessa was coming up and we had just like gotten our, our, um, our step repaved. And the first thing that I had said all day was, no, get him, go around back. <laughs> it just came out like so rude. And like, I'm sorry, again, I'm sorry for that. But like, I had been up for half an hour. I had taken a shower by that point, I think. But so we're, Boaz here, is, he's hearing this and his response to this is, is noteworthy. But she says, spread out your robe over your servant because you are a redeemer. Now, this is a language that evokes a marriage proposal. Like in Ezekiel 16, it says, this is God talking of, of Israel. When I passed by you, I realized that you were ready for love. So I spread my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. People would have heard this. And this is certainly what Ruth was trying to uh, intimate as she is talking to Boaz. One commentator says, here is a servant demanding that the boss marry her. A Moabite making the demand of a rich man. Was this the act of foreigner naivete or a daughter-in-law's devotion to her mother-in-law or another sign of the hidden hand of God? 
another commentator, John Golden Gay, says, Ruth makes it clear that she is proposing. She is taking initiative, not merely in approaching him, but in talking about marriage. With all due respect, Josh Harris, this is not what's happening in the ancient Near Eastern text. As Ruth is showing up in the middle of the night, she's uncovering Boaz's feet. She's laying down next to him. He startles up in the middle of the night and says, who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth, I'm your servant. Spread your cloak over me. Marry me, marry me, marry me. (laughs) I am not waiting for Boaz to court me, Josh Harris. They're putting a plan into, into works here. Why? Because Boaz, you are a kinsman redeemer. You are family. You are not obligated to do this. And there's, there's a lot of weight with this term. It's not just your obligation to do this, but it's potentially the case where you can step up and help us in a way that nobody else can. And I'm here in the middle of the night risking everything because you've given us some food and you've been gracious and you've demonstrated care and compassion. And here I am saying, please spread out your cloak over me. I'm your servant. We need you. Redeemers are to take responsibility for the unfortunate and stand as their supporters and advocates. They are to embody the basic principle of caring responsibility for those who may not have justice done for them. And this is what Ruth is approaching with this proposition to Boaz. Be this person. Take care of us. Take care of me, your servant. Sure. Sounds good, Moabite servant girl. No problem. Boaz, in the way that he responds to Ruth, he's very awake, he's very aware. He says, may the Lord bless you. I mean, this is not like a Tessa, go around back. This isn't that kind of situation. And you can tell that there might be some uh, some narrative liberties that are being taken here, but he says, blessed are you, Ruth, because you have demonstrated chesed. This is what Ruth is all about. It's about two things. It's about people demonstrating chesed and it's about people doing the work of God. And what Boaz is saying here is because Ruth, this, this act of you getting all dolled up, pardon the phrase, you've taken a bath, you've anointed yourself, you put on some nice clothes, you're here and you're now asking me to marry you. This act of chesed is, is even better than the first act when you came from a foreign land back here with your mother-in-law in spite of the fact that you could have gotten married back home. This act here is is demonstrative of how much you love Naomi. I'll take care of you. One commentator says that chesed, it refers to an action by one person on behalf of another person under these specific circumstances. One, the action is essential to the survival or basic well-being of the recipient. Two, the action is one that only the acting person can do. This isn't just some general thing. This is like only Ruth can take care of Naomi in this way. Only Boaz can help Ruth and Naomi in this way. And the act of chesed takes place within an existing relationship. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz throughout the book of Ruth demonstrate this character in very different ways. 
But this is what the book is about. And this is what we've talked about, or at least hinted at over the last couple of weeks. God works through Naomi and Ruth and Boaz in the way that they risk for each other, in the way that they put themselves out there within the community, perhaps facing the, the disrespect of the people around them or what have you, but they've, they've put themselves in a situation where God can work through them and God can work through us too. As followers of Jesus, people that have committed ourselves to following after him, we have placed ourselves in, an, in a, a set of circumstances where we might be used in a way to bring about this commitment and this faithfulness to people that no one else can. Just looking around the room right now, you guys all represent relationships that I do not have with other people. As you look around the room, you can say, I have relationships that none of these other people have as well. There's people in my life that I can reach for the sake of Jesus that these other folks can't. As a church body, I know that we are reaching people that other churches aren't. This is why we have a lot of churches in our community. This is why churches do things differently so that we can reach more people and be the hands and feet of Jesus in Salisbury so that we can have ministries that impact certain people. I know full well that through the work that Martin is doing and through the work that Susie and Nadia and all of our volunteers are doing down the street that we are reaching the North Camden community in ways that other people are not. It's because folks are making good on the opportunity and the call that God has placed in their life to go and to do the work that God is allowing us to do. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about participation. Jesus is inviting us into this relationship with him, not just so that we can be blessed, but so that we can put our hands to the plow and get busy doing the work that maybe nobody else can do. But we have to ask ourselves the question, are we? Or are we just complacent because we've been blessed? and because we've received chesed? Or do we wanna be the type of people that go out and extend it and invite others into what God is up to? Now we're gonna end here because uh, Boaz does say, listen, this is great, I'm gonna do this, but there is one problem here. There's a kinsman who's closer than me. And this is the beauty of the storytelling of Ruth. It's not just this, easy sort of situation. Ruth has stuck her neck out. She has gone to talk to Boaz, and Boaz says, I'm gonna try to do this, but we've gotta to talk to one more person. That's what we're gonna look at next week in this story, but what I wanna leave us with today is this open invitation that God so desperately wants to use you. Maybe not because he needs to, but because he wants to. And if we have become complacent, and if we have become stagnant, and if we have become uh, content with where we are, and we're not seeking to, to bless and to invite and to include, we've missed it. What God calls us to do is to love him with everything that we have, and to love our neighbors in a way that's practical and tangible and demonstrable to our community and the people around us. So let's do it. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.